HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is Henry Patterson, or H-Pat, as many call him. Decades of restaurant experience, followed by a consulting practice called Rethink Restaurants that is credited with helping other restaurants improve their teamwork and their bottom line. H-Pat has a thing or two to share about putting the guest first. We recorded this interview with H-Pat just before coronavirus confused everything. But when we caught up with him last week, we learned that he is just about to leave for Poland to volunteer at World Central Kitchen to help feed Ukrainian refugees. Let's hear a little about why and how he decided to sign up with World Central Kitchen, and then we'll hear an excerpt from our original interview. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. Yeah, I am going to Poland to help feed the Ukrainian refugees as they leave the country. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen already set up, I'm going to jump in with them. I've wanted to do this for quite a long time, and next week it's my 70th birthday, so now I'm going to do this as my birthday present to myself. What the Russians have been doing is so contemptible. I have to do something, and this is it. As a food person, we all love to help. We love to feed people. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. I've been watching the news. It's so contemptible. How could the Russians ever think that the world is going to forgive them for this? So many people that I know just feel so helpless about it. What can I do? Jose Andreas has answered that question for all of us starting back in 2010 when the earthquake hit Haiti. 
And it's brilliant because food people need to give. It's our DNA. We need to give of ourselves. And cooking for people and feeding them is obviously the way we have found that we can be in the world and be right with ourselves. He created World Central Kitchen, set up kitchens to feed people who really need it to be fed. You know, they, they outdid FEMA by a wide margin in Puerto Rico, too. It's grown, and I'm proud to finally be a part of it for the first time. When we come back, we'll hear about HPAT's philosophy for keeping customers his for life. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Are you a business owner? This spring, amplify your business and support HRN's mission by becoming a business member. HRN is dedicated to spotlighting small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. With a $500 business membership, HRN can shine a light on your work and you can help sustain our mission to transform the way people think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You will also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. And we are back with HPAT. Today he's going to give us a little bit of an insight into all the different things he's learned about the restaurant over the past 45 years. Let's go Uh, (laughs) HPAT. Well, hi, Louisa. I'm glad to have this chance to talk with you again. We don't do it often enough. I started when I was 24, and I opened a restaurant in Cambridge, and we grew that to six locations around Boston over a 15-year period. They were called Bel Canto. We won nine Best of Boston Awards along the way, and I still get notes from people asking me for recipes, which always gives me a thrill to think that people remember that food so well and want to be able to reproduce it at home. I sold in 91, and I had to agree not to operate for three years as part of the deal on the sale of the company. They didn't want my key people to jump ship and join me in a new venture. I'm going to ask you to start okay. a little bit about, like, why food? Why food? Did, why f- did food grab you from the beginning? You were in college. You could have done anything you wanted to do. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I had been counseling Harvard College students. I had gone to graduate school at Harvard and then worked for my mentor in the Bureau counseling Harvard College students. And then he retired and I could not see doing that work without his supervision. I was way too young to be doing it. 
but I learned a ton and we retired together, but I had no particular plan until a childhood buddy of mine proposed that we open a restaurant together. Now, my focus really wasn't, to be honest, wasn't so much on the food initially. It was on the idea that I could take a group of people and grow an organization. I had studied adult development. What interested me was the idea that that running a restaurant is really about growing the people involved, and that has never changed for me. I've always been able to find other people who were really the culinary leaders. I'm a hell of an eater, and my wife thinks I'm a very good cook. But most of the things that we developed in that concept were created by people on the team who took a lot of pride in the opportunity to participate in shaping the direction of Belcanto. Uh, the thing that took me the longest to learn was to use the financials to make management decisions. Like everybody else who got into the restaurant business, we did it because we had a passion for food or wanting to host the party or, or wanting to create uh, a community and create a place. We didn't have business backgrounds. We didn't know really what the hell we were doing on the business level. I had four restaurants before I got serious about using the financials. We were so good at hospitality and at, at the food. And the team was so dynamic that we got away with not being smart about the financials. But uh, we could have made a lot more money. And we could have grown the company that much stronger if we had known how to do it earlier on. So that became my mantra. That people, especially chefs who have a lot more talent than I ever could imagine having myself to help them be business people and not compromise their art and be able to do both, that's become my passion. It extends to the whole team, not just to the leaders. What I really wanted to talk about with you today was something that I've been thinking about lately quite a bit, and that's the basic connection with guests. And so much of the conversation now about marketing in restaurants is about social media and online reviews and the technology. I want to go back to when I opened Belcanto and Wellesley. We had four restaurants going already, Cambridge and Beacon Hill and Lexington. While we were under construction in Wellesley, I went around and met my business neighbors. I acted as a general contractor, but once my guys were doing what they needed to do for the day, I would walk up the street and introduce myself to the shop owners and tell them, you know, we were coming. Over a course of a couple of weeks, I started to find that I was getting the same message repeatedly from people. And it surprised me and it alarmed me, or at least it alerted me. What they told me was, don't open until you're ready. The talk, the buzz in this town is fierce. I mean, everybody will be talking about your place. And if your people don't know what they're doing, if they seem stressed, if things are not under control, if they're making a lot of mistakes, everybody in the town is going to back away. One guy told me how people still talk about the kid who, when he was asked what the red wines by the glass were, he didn't know. And then he went away and he came back and he said, there's a cabinet and a Merlot. And they've been talking about, do you want to go get a Merlot ever since? 
They never forget stuff like this. So don't let that happen. My answer to everything is to create a system to address it. I do believe in that, and I teach that. We created what we call the guest at risk system, that any person on the team who sensed that a guest was going to leave less than satisfied had to alert me as immediately as possible so that I could make sure that by the time that guest left, what they remembered was how much we cared about their experience, how respected they felt, the attention that was paid, and not the mistake that was made. I didn't want anybody leaving there undermining the buzz about us and the restaurant. I just couldn't imagine betting the ranch on a new restaurant and having it get off to a bad start. I urge startup restaurateurs that you have to be on the premises leading by example for the first 100 days in a row and your whole team has to know that you are going to be there and you are going to do that. And they should also know that on the 101st day, you're going to leave the country and that they're going to be ready to run that restaurant without you, at least for a couple of weeks. But for that first 100 days, we started service with a pre-meal meeting in which I said, okay, my job tonight is to see to it that every guest who crosses our threshold leaves here satisfied and intending to return. Your job is to thrill them as best you can, to make them feel important, to do what you need to do in your section, and to be my eyes and ears and let me know if anybody might be less than satisfied so that we can address it together. And we logged the guest at risk reports. We sat down weekly and looked at all the ways in which little things had gone wrong or major things had gone wrong. And then we created uh, policy to uh, prevent those things from reoccurring. So Henry, talk about what some of those small and large, what goes wrong? A, a piece of wood in somebody's salad, food being brought to the wrong table, and then it takes forever to replace it because once it's on somebody else's table, it can't be served to the people that ordered it. Uh, a person not being told to keep a takeout salad level and walking away with it turned sideways. The dressing ends up on her very expensive coat. There's just a hundred stupid little ways that things can go wrong in a restaurant. But if somebody, preferably the owner or manager, but somebody who, who can present themselves as a person of, quote, importance, cares about that guest's experience and is right there with them, that's what they remember. They can't feel disrespected out of that mistake happening to them. When people first arrive and they're hungry, we used to call it hunger psychosis, they can be really harsh. It's challenging sometimes to remember that what we want to happen is we want them to feel cared about and respected, even if they're being disrespectful to me. I don't have a high tolerance for their disrespecting my staff, but I'll intervene and, and make it work for everybody. So Henry, tell me the story about how you had this special program for essentially VIP regulars. Oh, what I just described is the sort of the reputation defense, right? You don't 
want anybody polluting your word of mouth. The offense is about having people who really are willing to uh, share with you what their experience is. Because you can walk around the room and say, how's everything tonight? And people say, fine, fine, fine. It's socially awkward for people to ever complain. So being really good at reading the room and reading people and finding the guests at risk is one thing. But then there's this other end of the spectrum. We call them critical friends, Louisa. I can walk around the dining room all night long asking people, how's everything, greeting them and so on, and very rarely learn much of a critical nature. And if they're basically having uh, a good experience, they're not going to nitpick something. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot that could be learned if I could really get guests to tell me about their experience. So I solved this and I teach other people how to do it. And it's it has to do with giving people permission to be critical. This is what overcomes that social barrier. So when people come in and I recognize them and we say hello uh, and I can feel that this is a good time to do it, I will say, hey, I want you to play restaurant critic for me tonight. What do you think? I'll come sit with you at dessert. Dessert will be on me. I want to hear about anything and everything you want to tell me about what it was like to dine here tonight. I really want to know. And I rarely got turned down in those overtures. And some of those people would tell me things that were simply enthusiastic appreciation, really nice to hear, but not very useful. But enough people would have something really interesting to tell me. And it might be as simple as when you're sitting in this seat, when that kitchen door opens, there's a very bright light that reflects off the glass on the door of that oven and it hits you in the face. I never noticed that, but it was easy enough to fix, but it made that seat an undesirable seat. Uh, I would thank those people. I called those people friendly critics. What I wanted was critical friends. I wanted people who were willing to be critical in the spirit of friendship. And those people, people who really provided insights, things that I learned and could put to use, I would send those people a handwritten thank you note. I would make them officially critical friends of the house. And we would have a couple of dozen people like this. Often there were couples who were designated as our critical friends. And if they came in and I wasn't there, they would leave me a note. Or sometimes they would call me. People would call me from the dining room sometimes. Say, How come you're not here? Well, <laughs> I have a life. <laughs> but they wanted to tell me. Sometimes it was, you know, glowing, wonderful stuff about a server who just went above and beyond and, and they wanted had to tell me right away. Or, uh, sometimes it was a problem. But those people were became great advocates or they felt like it was their place when we launched a new menu which we would do seasonally we'd have new things that would come on and things would come on we would invite them to come in on sunday night and we'd make all the new stuff for them and they would critique it we actually did learn some things from that it was very good for the staff to make those things with the idea that they were going to be reviewed by the critical friends team uh, I just can't tell you how powerful this is to have a couple of dozen people out in the community who really think that they are some kind of board of directors for your restaurant. And it's their job and their privilege. And when they bring people in with them, 
they know that they're going to be treated royally and they become people who bring other guests and send other guests. It's so simple. It's just about giving people permission to tell you the truth. And I don't know what else to, to say about it, but it's not something you can do with social media so easily and still, I think, needs to be done in person. Tell me a little bit about some of the things you learned from those critical friends. Adjustments to the way food was presented or seasoned or those Sunday night things uh, were great for really refining food before we actually put it out to the general public. It could be as simple as saying that vent up there needs to be directed away from this table. It's right on my head. You'd have to sit at every seat in the house to find out what's the unique problem of that seat. Staff noticed that they would try to seat somebody at a particular table and they would always ask for another table. And we weren't sure why until we just realized that we needed to put a little knee wall to separate it because there was just too much traffic going in and out and coming from a bar or from another area near the kitchen. We just got much better tuned in to what the guests experienced when they were sitting in our house. You know, maybe if you're an architect, you could tell all these things, but I couldn't tell all those things until I heard it from my guests. And the fact remains that your economic life is based on the guest experience. And if you don't know what the guest experience is, you can't adjust. I think people spend way too little time and don't take it seriously enough to really continuously interview guests, really understand why they come to do business with you. What are they really coming for? If you understand that, you can win. If they're struggling with deciding what they're going to order, if you're impatient, shame on you. When you go out to eat, are you a critical friend? Ah, yes, I am. And I do it privately and I do it carefully and I do it in the spirit of friendship. I'm a sensitive complainer. When I give somebody feedback, I generally have the reaction of, oh, thank you. That's really useful to know. I don't come at them with judgment. I know too much about what it takes to deliver great experiences day in, day out, to be harsh. Well, I'm with you there. When I was a, a food editor and I would write about a place and I would like a place, and I am not the most critical person in the world in general, but I would write nice things about a place if I had a nice experience or I would send off the critics, you know, to the actual critics who work for the actual newspaper. Very often people would call me up and say, or send me a letter saying, that place you liked, it is terrible. You should close them down. You should call them and tell them how terrible they are. And I would listen to this and I would say, well, what happened? And they would tell me, you know, this happened or I don't know, the guy spilled soup on my shirt, you know, whatever it was. Right. I got Maybe I got food poisoning. Maybe I didn't. I would say to them, did you tell them? Did you say anything to the people at the restaurant? Oh, no. And they would say, yeah, oh, no. Oh, no. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want to put myself. Couldn't possibly. Couldn't possibly. <laughs> and I would say, well, that's what you need to do in real time is to let yeah. them know. Occasionally, if I started hearing a lot of complaints about a place and I thought it was fixable, I would call up the owner or the manager and say, you should know this. But in general, yeah. people need to be encouraged to speak up. 
everybody wants to make it right. They will die to make it right unless they want to commit career suicide. People want mm. guests to leave happy. You know, our job is to, to know how to listen. I don't think we can put it on the guests that they have to become better at providing the information. <laughs> but I wish people were, were more willing. And don't just say, oh, everything's fine. And then you look at their plate and, and they haven't eaten something. I once had a dinner early on in the early days of Bertucci's with mm -hmm. Joey Crugnali, who was yep. the founder and visionary behind Bertucci's. And yeah, we, and, we were, and other things. Yes, and we were having dinner, and I kept noticing his eyes tracking some other place. I said, what's up? And he said, we put five olives on a salad, and nobody's eating more than three. It's a waste. And I thought, okay then, yeah. He said we can cut back on the olives. Okay then, he was <laughs> he was on top of it. Henry, this is great. I'm going to let you go. I think we've made the fundamental point. You have to go out of your way to listen to guests. You've got to do it respectfully. If you can understand your customers' reason for doing business with you, that's a fundamental business advantage that you need to take seriously. We have one more question for HPAT about his trip to Poland. So we're speaking to you today, a week or so before you head off to Poland to help feed the Ukrainian refugees. Are you scared? Yes. To be honest, I don't entirely know what we're getting ourselves into. But, you know, I want to live my life as fully as I can. And this speaks to that deeply for me. I'll let you know if I have reason to be scared, but I'm going. Please let us know. Please stay in touch. We'll be posting updates if you send them to us. Great. Absolutely. We'll do. Thank you. A note to our listeners, stay tuned. HPAT is bringing his digital mic with him to Poland, and we hope to have news from him on our podcast. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 